listeners, you're in for a treat. We're talking to Robert Bradley today on his book, Eating Peru, A Gastronomic Journey, is full of, of information you didn't even know that you needed to know, and it's fascinating, and I happen to be, a, a, what do you call somebody who loves Peru, Robert? Uh, aficionado of Peru, maybe. <laughs> okay, now, you, you, we have to introduce you. You're, you're actually um, an academic, um, an ex-wine salesman. Um, <laughs> you're married to a Peruvian woman, and you've spent yes. a whole bunch of time in that wonderful country. And uh, yes. your book gives information that, you know, it's just in such depth and such perspective that um, you just have to, listeners, sit down and read it cover to cover and then go back and reread sections that are interesting to you. I mean, you'll find some art history in there because he's also an archaeologist and art historian. Uh, you'll find uh, geography, which is something that always interests Peter. Um, so welcome to On the Menu, Robert, and uh, let's just launch into it. There's so much to talk about. Thank, thank you so much, Anne and Peter. Uh, yeah, well, you, you love this country the same as we love it, but you love it maybe more so, of course. You have more ties to it. You were well off the beaten path as well. Yes, uh, I, I started out um, when I did my graduate work. I mean, my my advisor, Columbia Esther Pastori, was a Mesoamericanist, so she basically worked in Mexico. But she said, you know, why don't you go to northeastern Peru because there's not much done on this area called the Chachapoya mm-hmm. uh, or the Chachapoyas and. Uh, I said, yeah, okay, that sounds good, and, you know, went down there initially with basically no Spanish on a, on a Fulker turbo prop. I landed in Cajamarca, and I wound up in a town where there were more horses than people, and uh, <laughs> then I spent the next few years just, uh, uh, you know, going around the cloud forest of northeastern Peru and doing my, you know, my graduate work out there, uh, and I just, I loved it. And, you know, the area is pretty remote. I mean, it's not really a a food destination for people. I mean, you know, uh, uh, there there are some interesting things. But I remember I would take some R&R time. And and Chachapoyas can be really difficult. I mean, it rains a lot. The trails are incredibly muddy and steep. And I needed some some downtime. I would go to the coast. And I remember my first visits to the coast. I was like, wow, this this food's really good. I mean, how come I don't know about this? (laughs) And, uh, you know, just especially the ceviche. The ceviche was actually fantastic. Uh, I mean, I just, I I couldn't believe the the quality. And then over time, um, the thing, writing about Chachapoyas was very difficult because it's so remote. There are some really wonderful ruins that aren't supposed to be anywhere, but it's very hard to get, get, you know, things about Chachapoyas published. So Uh I started to... You mean because there aren't that many people wanting to go and that's the deal? Yeah, I think that's it, and it's also it's even for Andeanists, it's a little exotic. I mean, <laughs> the people were conquered by the Inca, and you know, there's. Well, I, I remember I had one professor. There's a, a cut stone like that. The the stonework you'll see in Cusco with this finely cut stone buildings. There's one that's two days out from this very remote town called Lema Bamba, and two days by foot. 
or mm-hmm. well, it's actually two days to another place and then three days to the ruin itself. So you're talking about five days. And it's this incredible building and it's not supposed to be there. And I had a professor, I told him, I said, you know, I've been out to this building. He's like, well, no, there's nothing like that out there. And I said, okay, well, here's a picture. And he's like, okay, what's that doing there? And there, there are a lot of things like that out on the eastern slopes, but they're just so inaccessible. It's really hard to write about. Well, you know, the thing that I find really amazing is that people tend to simplify a Peruvian culture and, and everything about Peru, uh, not yeah. realizing at all the exposure that has taken place with other parts of the world. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah I mean, and, it, it, well, um, and the, the history of it, um, one, a chef we know, um, Martinez, you probably know him, he's very well known, but anyhow, um, he and his sister are doing a, a, what do you call it? I mean, it's like they're cataloging all these traditional native plants and things. And do you know about that? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, uh, you know, is, is this for Helio Martinez? It's central? Uh, yeah, right. Be, right, because he's doing it, what's it called, Matter Invictus? Or <laughs> his sister's an anthropologist. Yes, and right. And she's actually recording all the information. And he's yeah. doing a wonderful job. I, I mention him in the book. I mean, he's got the number one restaurant in the world now which is really yeah. spectacular which is very good i mean we've been there with his his restaurant in, in um london was not nearly as good until i, I think that and, and you know finally his wife's getting some attention you know for, yeah, for years yeah, yeah. he never she never got anything yeah yeah she wound up sixth i mean and she's got uh she's got that new restaurant called uh Mach, maca and that's yeah. in uh, the Nazarene in Cusco. Um, you know, I, tr- I tried to get in to take a look at it, like, last year when I was in Cusco, but the doorman wouldn't let me in the, the hotel. I mean, really? I'd been out in the field for a bit, and I, I guess I looked pretty grungy. <laughs> I, I should have washed up and, 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 and gone back, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back there this summer. I think I'm going to go eat there, so I, I'll uh-huh. clean up first. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I mean, I, I I did enjoy your comments about um, the the different schools of of dialogue about um, Peru and, yeah. and the the elitist. Tell us a little bit about this. I mean, there, there yeah, is this whole elitist thing that goes on. I know. Yeah, it's it's really amazing because. So much of the information I got from the authors at San Martin de Porres, like Elmo, Elmo Leon or, or uh, uh, you know, Zapata, you know, there's, there's tons of people. Now, they mostly write very specific things about Peruvian <coughs> cuisine. I mean, and it's also got a touch of nationalism to it, which it should, because they're very proud of their country and very yeah. proud of you know, now it's really, you know, it's been the, the number one travel destination in the world for almost a decade. And, you know, they'll, they'll write about specific things, but mostly they write in Spanish. And, you know, you, you don't get a lot of, uh, you know, basically readers in the United States, probably more in Europe, but, you know, in North America. Too. <clears throat> now, for the scholars that write about Peruvian cuisine, in North America, and this goes over to Europe somewhat, 
Um, they, they're both mostly critical of the Peruvian, you know, gastronomic boom. I mean, they, they write from sort of a social critique perspective where it's, oh, these are celebrity chefs and these are, you know, global, you know, this is benefits <laughs> the global elites and it doesn't benefit your average, you know, Peruvians. And I mentioned in the end a conversation with Raul Mata, who's a Lemeño. He's a Peruvian who, who actually studies in Europe. Or he's, he's a professor. He's a PhD. And right now he's a fellow in France, uh, you know, at one, at, at one institute. And Marco Lauer, who's a, a Peruvian, you know, food writer. And he, he does mention that actually it does trickle down a little bit. It, it has elevated a lot of people in Peru. My own sort of point of view is I don't really go after Peruvian cuisine from some theoretical framework to try to say, oh, well, the, the boom is not good, because I think it is. Yeah. And I also i am very appreciative of the San Martín de Porta's authors, and I think I do mention they sometimes they get a little nationalistic, but that's okay too. And I, I try mm -hmm. to stay in between the two schools. And what yeah. my project is tr is trying to get all that information that you know comes from these writers and all the information I've gleaned and just get it out to as many people as I possibly can. I mean, when I was doing this book, I had a great editor at, you know, University of Oklahoma Press and Alessandra said, you know, why don't you make it a public facing text so you can, instead of just writing something with, you know, a lot of times academics, we write a book for either the hundred people in the room that can <laughs> criticize you. Yeah, and but I wanted to make this so everybody would want to read it. I mean, whether or not you're, you know, uh, a student going down to Peru your first time and you want to know why the food's so good, why, you know, why, you know, how the fish gets there and, you know, why it's, why there's so many different types of wonderful seafood offerings and, and <clears throat> I just like to have everybody enjoy it and use it as a guide. Right. Now, um, an example of, of how writing about it could ruin things is that um what's the name of that that little chinese restaurant that um it's in lima and that was, was lauded by um what's his name who died um you know who i'm talking about um and, and he and eric um from uh, yeah what what's the name of the guy anthony Tony down he and, and Eric Repair wrote about mm -hmm. this. Oh, okay. This, and, yeah, and, yeah. That little Chinese restaurant. And that was on our press tour. And mm -hmm. I have never met anybody I disliked as much as the person who owned that restaurant. <laughs> but it turned it into this. I mean, he, he's, he's a monster. He, will, he won't let you in if he doesn't like you. You know, he, he puts you at bad tables yeah, if you commit to get in. It's, it's a horrible thing, and you don't get to choose what you're going to eat, and you don't, I mean, it's just... And, and, and how, about, how about trying to go to the bathroom? Oh, that's, that's, I mean, I don't know how it ever passed any kind of a sanitation inspection. But, I mean, so they, they've taken and made monsters out of uh, something that, I mean, I think is probably, it's very typical of, of the, uh, the Chinese um, Peruvian influence, I think. Of this restaurant, but they made it into something it wasn't, and it's it's like a monster, I think. Yeah, well, Makocho, a restaurant in Winchaco, which is a, you know fishing village, you might you 
probably been there, a little bit north of Trujillo, but it's a beautiful little village. Yeah. And the first time I went to the restaurant Makocha, which is owned by a, a Tushan, a, you know, Chinese-Peruvian family. Most of the Chinese-Peruvians are Cantonese. Well, they, they do Cantonese-style food. And yeah. They came over from, from uh, you know, basically Hong Kong, you know, as, as a, you know, almost indentured servants during the end, of, towards the end of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, the owner's name is Ricardo Sulim Wong, which, how, how do you like that name? I mean, Sulim. Yeah, wonderful. Rolls off your yeah, tongue. It's just amazing. And he specializes in whole fish, which is you know, definitely Cantonese, but he does whole fish in these different spices, which are all pre-Columbian or mostly pre-Columbian. Uh-huh. And you have to knock on the door the day before. And if, you know, if his name's Wen. If Wen looks at you and he doesn't like, like you, you don't get in the restaurant. I mean, you know, it, but <laughs> if he likes you, then the next day he'll have everything set. And you don't ask what the price is. And, you know, he fixes the menu and I think there's, there's like some of that. There's no doubt about it. Now, um, I've, I wrote about him in, a, in a, a good journal called Gastronomica, and I you yeah. know, was very kind. So he's, he's like always welcomes me. Hey, how you doing? Okay, sure, come, come on in. But I still don't <laughs> you know, tell him to do his menu. He does that on his own. It's right. pretty much going to be ceviche is going to be the first dish, and then the yeah. second dish will be whole fish with white rice and um, you know, it's, it's a pleasant thing, but you know, yeah, you, you know, when you, you know, some of these things, especially in Lima and some of the coastal towns, Peruvians can be edgy. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I've got my, I've got a lot of experience that with my, with my wife and her family I mean, you know, that some, sometimes they can get really, you know, really after you, especially if, if, you know, there's something they don't like. Um, you, so why this is would that? Be Javier you know? Wong. I well, haven't read I, anything that explains that aspect of Peruvian <clears throat> culture. Well, I mean, you can almost, if you look at the ceramics from Moche culture, um, mm-hmm. you know, no, nobody's really figured them out because they have everything from very explicit sex to these heads of these warriors that were engaged in gladiatorial combat. And they also have uh, ceramics of people with diseases and people that are deformed, and people laughing, people carrying. And I just think it's a really vibrant, like coastal culture tends to be vibrant and very yeah. like open and very much right in your face. And you can see that in pre-Columbian things. And I think there's a tradition where that's just sort of, kept on going and been amplified in the modern era because, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely there, you know, for sure. But, you know, yeah, the food's good. <laughs> well, you know, you used the term, um, an, an art historian, a friend of mine, um, attacked me for using the term pre-Columbian, which is not um, politically correct anymore. What do you use instead? Oh, I don't know. I still use Colombian. I mean, how else are you going to describe it? I mean, a pre-Hispanic, um, you know, pre-conquest. I mean, um, you know, before the Colombian exchange. I mean, there's there's many ways of saying it, but I mean, uh, I I don't think there's well, I okay, if you want to eliminate Columbus, because I know there's that thing, you know, keeping him out of the out yeah, of the dialogue. Well, so I guess you would say, per, you know, pre-Hispanic, but. Um, 
<laughs> you know, yeah, I, you know, on those, I don't really, I, I always said that, I said this to my, um, to my editor, I, I don't really do theory that much. I mean, I, I find there's so many things I have to record and, mm-hmm. and, and just, you know, get out there that just doing theory just isn't my, isn't my thing. Now, about this book, no, I mean, there's so much information in it, and there's so much that people can glean from it. What do you think are the most important points you make that people should should pay attention to? Well, there's one overall theme that I that I found when when doing the research for this is that a lot of the ingredients and a lot of the things you know that that make Peruvian cuisine so special have been around for thousands of years, and they just echo throughout like time. I mean. If you take, for instance, like the fact that, you know, you had hunter-gatherers coming down, they come over the Asian land bridge and they work their way down to the, you know, the, you know, the bottom of South America. Now, the, the time period for that is all debated. I mean, Tom Dillahay is a great archaeologist. He's retired now, but he did some work in Monteverde proving that it probably takes place thousands and thousands of years before we really think. But when the hunter-gatherers are going down, I mean, a lot of them wound up in Peru, and they're doing fishing 10,000 years ago, and they just find the most prolific fishing grounds, like, on the planet. And and that's still very much in effect today. If you look at things like, uh, you know, loche squash, which I mentioned, which is, you know, one of the incredible ingredients in uh, cabrito, which, uh, you know, the, the kid goat dish that's famous in northern Peru well, my mother-in-law would never make cabrito unless she had loche squash. And loche really? squash was one of the first things cultivated by those, and, you know, hunter-gatherers. So loche squash goes back probably to 10,000 years ago, and they still use it. I mean, and it's in one particular area. My book has a reference where there's a conference of squash experts that meet every year, as amazing as that seemed to me, I mean, yeah. I just thought, you know, wow, that's, that, that's got to be a fascinating conference. But they actually <laughs> say that, that loche squash is just in one particular area of the north coast of Peru and basically nowhere else in the world. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, it's just, you know. Well, uh, well there are varieties of potatoes like that, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, I mean, according to that museum we went to, the Museum of the Potato. I mean, there, there are things that no, they're trying to spread them around. I'm not quite sure about that. They they send yeah. them off to places to grow. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. Only one type of potato made it back to Europe, and. You know, it, it caused enough trouble. Let's put it that way. It gets to Europe right. and they start planting them, and then in France they had to convince the peasants to eat them by because they were supposed to be poisonous. Yeah, right, right. Like but they, they set up a field and they guarded the field of potatoes, and then you know one of the ministers in the French government, you know, pulled away the guards, and then the the peasants came in and robbed it. You know, they mm. stole the potatoes because they thought, well, if it's worth guarding, it must be worth eating. But then, you know, the potato, because there were so many grain failures, like complete famines in Europe that right. every, every few years, you know, people would just starve. But when they had potatoes, they could fill their bellies. And then, you know, you had potato war. It started wars. It, you could even say that the conquest, you know, is like 
sort of, you know, um, with bringing back the potato, I mean, you know, it just it literally changed the history of Europe. And yeah. then you had the, the potato and blight. And the United States, actually, too. I mean, North yeah, yeah. America, and then you had yeah. the potato blight, which causes the deaths of millions of people because, for instance, in Ireland, they were just, you know, eating nutritious potatoes. But they all came from, you know, South America. And, you know, you still can't get a good number of the different varieties of potatoes and, 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 you know, how many there are. I mean, you know, some will say 400, other studies say thousands. Oh, yeah, I've heard um, thousands, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People, and people, people have showed us around throughout a number like 10,000. Yeah, varieties. I mean, I would say that's, that's a little bit big, but who knows? I mean, you know, they live there. I mean, uh, you know, they're, they're going in the fields. I mean, in my book, I actually put some of the Amaru people, the people of like uh, Bolivia, northern Bolivia, the Highlanders, and how they're, they're still to this day, they're taking wild potatoes, and a wild potato has poisons in it because, you know, there's just this whole fight in nature, you know, that plants don't want to get eaten, so they have these toxins to keep us yeah. from eating them. And then when we cultivate them, we try to get the plants that have less of the toxins until we get rid of the toxins, and then we have to use fertilizers and pesticides because everybody else <laughs> wants to eat them. It's, it's kind of an amazing battle that, you know, you can't win. Well, somebody just sent us all this, um, this fruit, um, tropical fruit stuff, and um, I was amazed at how much, like, what, what kind of, What's a cherry called? Some kind of a. It looks like a ground cherry. Cherry moya. Oh no, I have that too. Uh, And and the seeds are poisonous in that. The the seeds are toxic. And and you you wonder, you know, how did these become dietary staples? No, but these little gold and um, berry things, I can't remember what they're called now. Well, Um, very resilient people because, you know, these Amaro people that, you know, had this, today they had this potato. And what they do is they're more used to the toxins because, you know, they try these all the time and they keep trying these bitter potatoes, these ones that are, you know, a little bit poisonous until they find some that are less poisonous and then they start cultivating (laughs) them. And then, then they get another potato, one that you don't have to put a ton of pesticides on or you don't have to, um, you know, use fertilizers. So, you know, this whole process of domesticating plants. And in, in the Americas, there were so many plants that were domesticated, you know, by, by indigenous people. It's, it's truly amazing. I mean, on the other side, they didn't domesticate many animals. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's really, ama- you know, an, another thing. I mean, they had the guinea pig, the duck, yamas. Oh, yeah. and, you know, that, that's an interesting thing. How did we get um, the... Yeah, the what's it called, uh, to be the national dish of, of um, Peru. Well, it makes perfect sense when you, if you go to an Andean kitchen. I mean, for people who live up in the mountains, you'll go in and it's an earth floor kitchen. And in the corner of the kitchen near where the oven is or where the, you know, the fire is that they're heating, you'll see a whole bunch of cute little guinea pigs in the corner eating table scraps. And, you know, that's the greatest garbage disposal you can have, you know, all organic. You just throw in and they just keep eat all the table scraps. And, you know, when, you know, and it's typically, you know, a woman who's in the kitchen when the the woman of the house has a pretty esteemed guest and you have to be 
It's a pretty good guess because guinea pigs are valuable. They're a source of protein in, uh, in the mountains where there's not a lot of protein. I mean, yeah, you know. no, that's one of the I – mean, you have this section on superfoods, which surprised me mm. because the basic uh, native diet in, in the higher up Andes regions um, are really short of all kinds of things, including magnesium, which is fairly important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah, and but then you 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 noted that they they were promoters of superfoods. Mm-hmm. Tell us about yeah, that. Well, yeah, well, you know, it's legumes like tarwe. I mean, tarwe is about the greatest thing for your body you can possibly eat, and it's also a beautiful little blue flower. I mean, it's 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 a gorgeous little flower. But tarwe, when you you know you get the tarwe seeds. And they're, you know, or you could go to a market, any Indian market, and you can buy it already prepared. I'd suggest doing that. Or they yeah. also makes ceviche to tarwe where they add cilantro and lime and some onion maybe and, and something like that. But you eat a bowl of that. And, you know, for vegans, that, would, that should be something they, they should seek out. Now, you could go to Virgilio Martinez's restaurant and get tarwe put in some dish that would be exquisitely done, but, you know, very, very expensive. But... You know, tarwe, I've made tarwe myself with dried tarwe, and I will tell you it's a pain. Yeah, I had to boil it for an hour and a half, and then I had to wash it for seven days. And then when I, when I finally had the – because tarwe is full of poisons. It's, it's one of those things that – one of those plants that's not really all that domesticated. But uh-huh. it's a, it's a superfood. I mean, it's incredibly nutritious. As is the peanut. I mean, the, the peanuts from, from Peru, I mean, from South America. I mean, peanuts are, you know, it's a shame in the United States now that, you know, my kids have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but, you know, the, the whole peanut allergy thing is going oh, to get worse. that's crazy. That, you know, well, but, but blame the pediatricians on that one. I mean, right, when we had grandchildren, I, I noticed and the list of the, things you're not supposed to give your kids for two years. You know, it's incredible. Well, the thing is, is, there's some toxins. There's some toxins in peanuts. And if you don't eat them, the way that we got over, and, you know, I'm I'm getting older there, but the way we got over it is we started to eat peanuts at a very young age. So any sort of allergy we had, we just, you know, it just disappeared. But But that's what they're recommending now. Yeah, well, they they should have recommended that decades ago. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah, but now well, they're recommending putting all this stuff on the menu as early as possible for kids. Right. You well, know, if you look at – there's very few foods in the world, and again, it's tarwe and peanuts are in the same family that are oh. better for you than peanuts. I mean, peanuts are incredibly nutritious. I mean, it's yeah. like – it is a superfood. And, you know, and a quinoa, Jimmy, for Jimmy instance. Carter, he'll tell you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's an incredible – and, you know, the funny thing is when I was doing research on the book, the peanut makes its way after the pre-Columbian, you know, the exchange of cultures after, you know, Columbus comes in. It makes its way to Africa pretty quickly. And by the time you get to the 18th century, the early 18th century, botanists are looking at the peanut and they think it's endemic to Africa. That's how well planted it was. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. truly amazing, you know, because obviously, yeah, you know, the Africans knew they had, 
you know, different cultures knew they had something incredible and they, they planted it all over the place, which yeah. is really remarkable. And other superfoods with, with quinoa, quinoa is another one. That, oh, well, that was a big splash. That, I mean, that put yeah. this, that kind of food, the South American food, the Latin American food on the map in a way, this quinoa stuff. Yeah, well, what, unfortunately what happened in a lot of highland villages, they used to eat quinoa. And I'm reviewing a book right now done by Raul Mata, and he was talking about, um, uh, what, what's his name, uh, Rocco Ray, who's one of the founders of Andean Cuisine. I think he died a few years ago. But Rocco Ray was talking about how uh, he was trying to get chefs back in the 90s, early 90s, to use quinoa. And, yeah. like, one of the chefs said, no, quinoa, we feed the chickens that. <laughs> you wouldn't do anything with quinoa. And then all of a sudden became a superfood, and it was a big bust because what happened was in Andean communities, the price of quinoa went way up. Yeah. So the Andean families were selling their quinoa for export, and then they were importing rice to feed their kids. And rice doesn't have any of the nutrients that quinoa no. does. Well, they so polish they, it, too. Yeah, so to make money, they were becoming more malnourished. I mean, it's really fascinating. Emma McDonald's a good scholar. She writes about the whole quinoa boom and bust, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, there certainly is a, is a big boom and bust. But anyhow, um, but, you, know, you, you already knew so much. I mean, what, what is something that, that somebody will find in this book? Um, that was a surprise to you, even though you weren't a total novice at, at the eating Peru or Peruvian uh, culture and cuisine. What, what is a, a, a big find in this book? Well, now, you know, uh, a, lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the simple themes, I mean, the fish, for instance, the varieties of fish, the, the whole... The whole idea that, the, you know, the Peruvian trench, when I think it's the, one of the deepest you know, trenches in the world. It's not as deep as the Marianas, obviously. And the fishing grounds off the coast of Peru, which Peru's gone to war over their fishing grounds, which mm. are prolific. I mean, they're absolutely incredible. And the other thing is it's cold, dark, nutritious water. I mean, everyone thinks, I, I thought too, it surprised me. When I first got to Peru, I thought, hey, well, I'll go to the beach. It's going to be really nice because, you know, it's almost right on the equator. I mean, <laughs> it's not that far and go out swimming and you can't. I mean, because you have the Humboldt Current, which wells up from Antarctica and it hu- hugs the coast of Peru yeah. all the way up. And then it turns at Ecuador and goes off to the Galapagos Islands. But yeah. the water is frigid. It's freezing cold, but it's full of nutrients. It's, it's just you know, it, it's, like I said, the most prolific fishing ground in the world. And the different types of fish that they get for ceviche. And the fact yeah. is, if, if you go through Lima, I mean, if, if you drive in the morning, you, you know, even early in the morning, you're coming in on a bus at 7 o'clock. <coughs> of course, you know, the restaurants will be serving ceviche. Most cevicherias is open kind of early, like 11 you know, mm-hmm. and, and I typically, I want to get my fish as early as I can because Peru doesn't have the same, you know, most of the, you know, the little, you know, right. the, the little corner shops don't have the refrigeration that we have. Yeah, might. right. But you'll even look out on the street and you'll see laborers who are driving by a little stand and they're eating fish. They're eating ceviche on the, like, paper plate. I mean, uh-huh. the, the whole, you know, fish runs the, you know, almost runs the, 
the economy. It's it's truly remarkable. And that guy. And the other thing that really got me is the freshness. I mean, if you're buying, if you're in a little village, and you're going into the fish market, and you get to know, I, I every place, you know, whether I'm in Winchaco or Pimentel, I would take time and get to know the people that are the fishmongers. And once you get them that you you know you know they know you, they're they're incredibly open, very good with you. I remember one time in Winchaco on the weekend they have a lot of people that come in from the bigger city of Trujillo and Lima and they have their, their vacation homes there. And I was there ordering, you know, some fish and you know, typically, you know, I'm a gringo, which has no negative connotation in Peru. You know, my friends call me gringuito, which is like cute little gringo, I guess. But um, I'm in a line, and, not even in a line, it's sort of a chaotic line. And, you know, the Lemanio is like, a lot of people are pushing in front of me because I'm a gringo. And, and the woman's like, no, wait a minute, I'm taking him first. And she goes, why, why, the woman goes, why are you taking him first? I mean, he's, he's a gringo. And, you know, she just said, he's here every day buying fish from me. <laughs> and after, after you buy fish there every day, day in and day out, you know, they're just, it's really wonderful. I mean, it's... Uh, so, so fish is just, and it, it, if there's one place I'd recommend, if anyone gets to northern Peru, go to Terminal Santa Rosa. It is a huge stopping point where all the, the boats come right. in and they offload their catch, and then they sort it out and they put them in these big blue bins to put on trucks to take typically to Lima. You can buy retail there before it gets shipped up to Lima. So you're getting fish that was swimming in the ocean probably the night before or a few hours before, and you can buy big fish. Now, when you go in there, you don't go and look around or take pictures because, you know, they'll get mad at you. They'll just say, hey, get out of here. <laughs> but if they know that you have $100 you're ready to spend on a really good fish, like a restaurateur or something, then they love you. You know, they'll come in and they'll, they'll, they'll accommodate you. You know, I've gone in there and I bought Ojo de Uba, which is Medusa fish. She gets that name because it's right, the yeah. Medusa jellyfish. And that's not a pre-Columbian fish. That fish has got um, Philip Barris, who's a friend. I've never met him, but I've communicated a lot with him. He's a French fish specialist and, you know, from, from Paris. Always, be, you know, work with a French fish specialist. I mean, they're, they're really good at that. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it goes back to the, you know, the... The guy who first started isolating the fish. Um, but a anyhow, uh, you know, that fish is caught on a long line. It's a deep fish, but it's one of my favorites. And you can go there. You can buy a fish. Um, you know, they'll hold it up. You know, you take that away. You can, I fed my entire wife's family, you know, making, you know, all the relatives coming over. I made the ceviche. You can get it cleaned, you know, at another stall in Terminal Santa Rosa for two bucks. <laughs> you know, and then when you walk out of the gate, there's all these vendors out there selling limons and the ahi, the hot peppers, and everything that you need. I mean, it's yeah. it's remarkable. Yeah. So that all that, that amazed me. And the other thing that amazes me is coca. I mean, you know, coca. Oh yeah, uh, I, we didn't talk about that. And everybody wants to ask you about coca. Oh yeah, I, I I could talk about coca for hours. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's just. Um, of the 216 varieties of the coca bush in the world, there are four of them in South America are the only ones that have cocaine in them. Um, you know, of the four, the one type of coca, it's got a very long name. It's got Trujillo. It's Novo Tarse. The scientific name goes, I don't know, a whole page, but it's got the Trujillo <laughs> because 
it's basically planted in the dry foothills around Trujillo, or that's where it's endemic. And the Inca called it Tupacoca, which means royal coca. That one they oh. said, this is the best. It's also the one that's used in the flavoring ingredient in Coca-Cola because it's got this wintergreen flavor to it. The other three varieties, I've chewed them, and they're not, they're not that tasty. They're really not. Um, I used to, in northern Peru, I used to buy my coca around Trujillo because my wife's from, uh, you know, the, or Chiclayo, the, you know, the north coast area. And yeah. I'd, I'd go to there and I'd buy my, my coca there. And then I'd go out more into the jungle. And, you know, it's typically chewing coca, which is, first of all, I hate cocaine. I think it's a blight on the face of humanity. It wasn't synthesized until 1865 by a German chemist. Um, and it was bad news from the beginning, and it's still bad news today. Chewing coca has been around in the human experience for at least 8,000 years, which is proven wow. in archaeology, and it's probably longer than that. But anyhow, you, you know, when I'd go out to these villages and start talking about, like, archaeology or where some ruins were, first thing I'd do is sit down, pull out a bag of coca. In my case, I'd have coca trujillo, which a lot of the people that I went to the village didn't have access to it. And they'd say, hey, this is really good coca. And then I'd say, okay, let's talk. Oh, what about, well, you know, where do I, you know, where's, where's a good ruin? And it's, it's a great way to do archaeology. I mean, it's really amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and in the well, book, I talk about how you chew cocoa, you know, what you want to, you know, because you have to have, a, you have, to have an, an alkali to chew it with. So typically you could chew it with wood ash. You could chew it with lime that you put in the soil. And there's techniques, I mean, but out of my students, I'll give them a class on how to chew coca. Do you uh, really? <laughs> yeah, I do. But you know what? 99% of them hate it because it's like chewing tobacco. It's kind of messy. It's yeah. an acquired skill that you have to, you know, you, you have to learn over a long time. And, 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 you know, when you chew coca, you don't get some high from it. It, it helps you not want to drink water, not want to eat. And for instance, if you're hiking in the mountains, it, it, it opens up my lungs. I have asthma and it makes uh, me just gives me energy to go farther and farther and farther. So it's a very useful tool. It's something that's, you know, we've yeah. been, been with human beings for thousands of years. I just read an article that um, some research um, proved that um, that that marijuana is actually um, good for developing empathy. It, the people mm -hmm. who, who, who uh, use marijuana are generally more empathetic. <laughs> I don't know. That's interesting. I, yeah, well, it, yeah. you could pursue that. Well, listen, we could talk for a million years, as you know. I mean, I just, I, I just love talking to you, Robert Bradley. And uh, listeners, get this book. Eating Peru, because it's so much more than gastronomy. It's, it's, it's culture. It's insight. It's all kinds of things, and and I, I love the book, Robert Bradley, and I thank you for sharing with us. Yeah, thank you, Anne, and thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate the interview, and I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Oh, I love it. Thank you.
Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.